Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we're talking to Emmy Rossum, star of Shameless on Showtime. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Variety's Executive Editor of Television, and it's my pleasure to welcome Emmy Rossum, star of Shameless. Hi. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you, and I'm so thrilled because you're directing an episode of Shameless this season. I did. Yes, that happened. I'd been asking for quite some time. I'm not sure if I had done it with as much follow-through as I did last year, Um, but I actually... People said, you know, if you really want to do this, you have to actually sit down with John, not just mention it as a joke, kind of off the cuff and hope that it happens. So I did, and I expressed my desire to do so, and he said kind of in his uh, friendly way, like, so what makes you think you can do that? And I said, I have no idea, but I think I can. I've been watching everyone do it for so long, and... um, I took this hiatus off and I took cinematography at NYU. Um, So I felt like I was much more ready and able to this year than ever before. And it's always something that I've been interested in. I'm the daughter of a a fine arts photographer. So the visual has always been something that I grew up around. And um, obviously the, the performances and getting to work with the actors and the quality of actors that we have on our show and getting to play with them and encourage them and tweak them um, is really, really fun. So I was really excited. Did you get to pick your episode? I did not. I was assigned my episode, which they told me was one of the most expensive, it turned out. Not because of how I did it, but because we had rain rigs and night work and other things and a lot of locations, a lot of exterior Chicago work. So um, I, I, I thought they would kind of toss me a bone and go easy on me, but I think they kind of threw me into the deep end without any waiters and were kind of like, swim, child. And swim you did. I think so. Yeah, I survived. I saw the episode. It was fantastic. You did a great job. Thank you. You have seen it. I have not seen it. Oh, my God. I will have seen it by the time this airs. Um, But I have not seen the final cut. My cut, I think, was 64 minutes. And now I think it's 53 minutes. So I will be interested to see what got nipped and tucked. What was the biggest challenge for you? The biggest challenge for me approaching the episode was um, with casting, with wanting to find uh, a trans actor who was authentically trans to play our first main trans character in the role of uh, Trevor, who's Ian's new love interest. Um, And there were lots of kind of awkward conversations that happen when you're talking about something that's not as common as just a cisgender or heterosexual actor. So 
you know, it needs to be someone that is believably, quote unquote, male looking so that it doesn't arouse Ian's suspicions that he would be anything other than cisgendered at the beginning of the relationship. And then there was conversation of what would we do if we couldn't, because the pool of actors who are transgender are is is not as many as cisgender. What would we do if we couldn't find someone who could do the role? And there, were, there was a lot of anxiety around that. And then when we started to throw out the net and go to GLAAD and other places like that and reach out to casting agencies and ask Jill Soloway and ask this person and that, ask that person um, for recommendations, we got so many incredible tapes that it was like all of the anxiety just dissipated. We actually had too many choices and we thought like, are there more roles that we can write for all these other people? Um, but Elliot Fletcher, who who, uh, who came in and read, was just kind of an immediate yes. He was um, uh, charming and had a naturalism that fit the show perfectly and had a, a real raw edge vulnerability um, and a a fire and an anger inside him that really suits that rough Chicago community and the Gallagher lifestyle so well. And we really just, I immediately fell in love with him um, and uh, was so excited to work with him. And he did just a fantastic job. So that was something that was, I was so honored to direct this specific episode because the LGBT, LGBT, I sound like Donald Trump now, LGBT community is so close to my heart and has, you know, growing up in the theater has been something that's so much a part of who I am and my community um, that I was so excited to get this episode and get the chance to be in the casting process for this character. You handled it really well because it was such, also so much about Ian's learning curve and Mm -hmm. learning how to deal with it. Yeah. And just the the kind of, uh, the comedy that can come out of that, of, of not knowing how to talk about that, of, of not knowing how ev- what everyone's pronoun is. I'm this, I'm, you know, do you say Z or he or they, or um, there are so many different things that we had to learn from a, from a writing and directing um, standpoint that was that was really illuminating too. I love that conversation that had that happened around the lunch table or it was a dinner table. Whatever yeah, it was, it was, mm. it was re- when they go to brunch. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, uh, and just to make sure that the actors we cast in, in those roles too, in the supporting roles in that scene, were also authentic. I mean, you know, why not? Those people are looking for work. They 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 need work too. So why would you cast someone cisgender or hetero in those roles? It was also a fantastic episode for your character. How do you even begin to direct yourself? It was it was a lot of work for my character. Um, I I suppose directing myself was not actually that difficult because I felt like usually I find that I am trying to gear up my emotion to kind of correspond to when they're going to roll the camera. And at this point, I had control of when we rolled the camera. So I could kind of know, I wore a kind of what we called a purse monitor. It was like a cross body double monitor with an A and B monitor on it and could kind of walk through and check the shot after the second team rehearsal, make sure everything was okay. And after that, I kind of just got myself to the right emotional place and then let somebody else, you know, gave the nod, somebody else called action and then I called cut. So 
directing myself was not as difficult as I thought it would be, but directing other people in a scene in which I was in was hard because you're simultaneously making notes in your head about where the camera is or what you want to tweak about their performance or suggestions or ideas you get when you when you also have to stay in the moment. So there's a little bit of brain splitting that happens because we shoot so fast too. So there's not a lot of time to watch playback, although playback was available to us. Um, we shoot, you know, 10 pages a day in a, in a 12 hour day. So, uh, it's not like there's an, there's not like there's double time to go watch back what you just did. That's fast. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Was the cast supportive of you? Very. Yeah. And the crew phenomenally as well. Um, I was a little nervous because I'm obviously a little type A and they know me as a perfectionist about my own work as an actress on the show. And I think that they, there was some kind of like talk the second day after they knew everything was going to be okay. Someone, I think it was Cameron Monaghan was like, we thought that maybe you were just like, you know, you'd been waiting for these past six and a half years to like tell us how we should really act in our characters. And now you were just going to unload it upon all of us. And I just thought that was so funny that, you know, maybe I'm not as expressive as I should be just as a fellow actor and telling them how much I admire them and, and how, um, incredibly talented and and brave I think they are and bold and um, it was kind of this big uh, learning curve for me because I was so excited to empower them and to um, knowing the characters as well as I do after having been on the show so long I felt like I was really in it with them if I would give them a note It, it felt like it was it had all the history behind it so there was nuance there that I felt that I could find with them um, that maybe another director wouldn't have known as well. Um, but I think it also taught me to be more um, expressive of good things too um, because they are just so funny and so bold and it was it was just such a great experience. And Macy too. I mean, I was, I was scared to direct Macy because he's Macy. I mean, Macy doesn't need to know what I think, you know, but I remembered when we were shooting the pilot that at one time he was doing some kind of physical comedy and it just kind of didn't feel like it was really landing and he started to kind of like take a poll on set of the crew like the you know the sound guy and the first AC and like what if would it be funnier if he did it this way or do, did it that way and I remember that he he was so um detached from judgment about his own performance or where a good idea came from um that's something that I really um, held close to my heart because obviously as my first time as a director, I think the smartest people know what they don't know. And it was very important for me to have a distinct idea of what I wanted the blocking to be, where I wanted the camera to be, what I thought the scene meant tonally and how it should feel texturally and emotionally. But at the same time, it's possible that my DP had a better idea than I did. And there were a couple times when I had to go, yeah, Lauren, you're right, I'm wrong. Um, And it's really liberating to know that it doesn't matter where a good idea comes from. You have to be ready to say, yep, your idea is better than mine. Let's go with that. And I think Macy taught me that very early on. It seems like that is the trick of the show, trying to find that dark humor and balance that Mm -hmm. dark humor with the drama. Because look, dark things happen on the show, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout the seven seasons. How do you find that tonally? And what what was the challenge for you like as a director versus being an actor in the show? My episode wasn't really heavy comedy, although there are a couple weird things like the pony play scene. 
um, where they're doing the role playing that's just kind of comes out of nowhere where I'm like, I don't really know if this is going to be, it's not funny on the page. It's just kind of bizarre and strange. And I looked up a lot of videos like, you know, that show, um, My Strange Addiction, TLC, My Strange Addiction, and there's a Pony Play episode. So I watched that and learned the different gates and trots. And the weird thing to me was that this Thruples relationship is so sexual, but the nature of Pony Play is kind of intellectually sexual, but not very physically sexual. Um, If you don't know what Pony Play is, you should Google it. Um, It's basically people dressing up like a horse and and they have a mane and and a it's it's a whole thing um and they kind of trot each other around uh so that i was a little hesitant because i didn't really know how to direct it but then we kind of came up with this idea of doing like a a camera on the saddle which i hope ended up in the final shot i don't know it's there are a couple things that are kind of that tonally definitely straddle a line with the show but i think that surrealism is also kind of present in life too um so uh that kind of straddling the tragic and the comic and the surreal nature of um, what it means to live in a dysfunctional family with, um, you know, predisposition to alcoholism and drug abuse and um, uh, emotional uncertainty and life uncertainty. So, yeah, you just have to... I always think that we just play for the truth of the situation and um, as strange as that seems, and if it lands funny, it lands funny, and if it lands sad, it lands sad. Did you get any advice from Sam going into this? Yeah. And actually, I think, you know, being with Sam is one of the things that made me feel so confident to do that. Because as a director, as an actor, when you're working with directors, what directors do seems kind of mystifying in a weird way. Like, they always seem to have the answer. Um but you're not really sure what they do beforehand or after after mm-hmm. they're on set. Um, the kind of pre-production and post-production is all kind of like a mystery to actors for the most part, I think. And so being around Sam all the time, I kind of feel like I shadowed him for three years. And it kind of demystified the whole thing. Um, and I think the best advice he gave me was just be prepared that m- everything will go wrong. And just to not freak out and only freak out when it really matters. And it was amazing to me, is because I'm a person who's predisposed to to freak out, is that I didn't freak out at all. It was kind of amazing. And within the first, the first scene that we did, actually, the first scene that I shot was the boys at the nightclub, which is their big moment of the whole episode that we shot first. Wow. And um, when we got there, I had wanted this specific lighting rig that would be the the colors of um, the transgender community, which are pink and blue. Uh, and so I'd, I'd requested these special lights, and of course they were too heavy to hang from the ceiling, so we had to improvise. So that was the first thing that went wrong. Then the fire alarm kept going off. We couldn't get a proper rehearsal off um, for like an hour. And then Elliot Fletcher, who's playing the Trevor role, who's supposed to do, I don't i don't know if they took it out, he's supposed to do cocaine in the scene. Does he do that yes, in the does. episode now? Mm-hmm. Um, he had never even seen cocaine or done a drug. Um, so there I am kind of like, 
you know, I can't get a rehearsal because the smoke alarm is going off. My lighting rig is totally fucked. And my actor has never even seen the drug that he's supposed <laughs> to be, you know, really good at doing. So I was just kind of like, okay, Sam's absolutely right. Everything's gone wrong and it's all going to be okay. We're just mm-hmm. going to figure it out. We got other lights. We got the cops to come in and turn the smoke alarm off. I coached him on how to do cocaine as far as well as I knew how to do it. And, um, you know, you looked on YouTube. I looked on YouTube and found out how to do cocaine and we were off to the races yeah so um yeah so so i think knowing that um it's not a smooth ride for anybody even somebody who knows how to do it really well uh was made me feel a lot better about when things went wrong would you do it again yeah in a second it's such a rush um i mean i don't know on what scale because I feel like the reason that I had half a chance at doing this well was because I feel like tone is so important and I feel like I understand the backstory and have lived this this world so long that it would have to be something that I felt texturally in my DNA was so much a part of me, um, like this show is after so many years of living it. Let's talk about living in the show for seven years. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like at this point, it's so rare to see a show like this go on for seven years. Mm-hmm. Could you have imagined that when you started? No, I didn't even think we were going to get picked up. I mean, I remember just thinking, at that time, there wasn't really anything on TV. I mean, there still really isn't. That's about poverty. Um, dysfunctional families, sure. There were a lot of long runs, parenthood and otherwise. And I could think of Sopranos in a certain way, but it didn't certainly didn't have our kind of farcical comedy weirdness. Um, I, I mean, I didn't even think the show would get picked up when it get when it got picked up. I was just overwhelmed with joy and hoped it would go. And then we got another season, and then I just wake up and we've been doing it for so long, and it just feels like second nature. But it's still so fun, and I still. You know, there are times when I think like, okay, how much longer can we tell this story? Um, How much longer can we have, you know, people struggle with their sobriety or struggle with who they are or their identity or will they make it in the world? But um, then I'll I'll do a scene with the fellow actor like Jeremy Allen White or Bill Macy or even the kids and I'll come home at the end of the day, you know, having done the scene and just had such a good time playing and had such a good time watching them and have surprised myself with what came out and what happened. And I think I've learned to have a real freedom about how I approach my work now because I've just trust that if, you know, if something can go on for seven years, there's some kind of trust I've developed with myself and some kind of um, freedom and forgiveness I've given myself that not everything has to be perfect all the time um, or perfect in the way that I think it should be in my head. Um, so I think it's been a real growing experience and such a positive thing for me in so many ways. Why do you think audiences have responded so much to this family and have embraced it for so many seasons? I don't know. It's, um, I think that everybody can find a character that they relate to. I think everyone knows what it feels like to love your family fiercely and hate them at the same time, Um, to struggle and want more for yourself, to feel like life isn't always fair, Um, to feel like 
you're an outsider to the world except for the people that you're an insider with. Um, I think that there's a lot of kind of surreal comedy that is really funny and entertaining. And I think at the at the core of it, it's really about family and love and heart. And I think that that resonates and works. Talk about your relationship with John Wells. Uh, how closely do you work with him in shaping each season? Does he bring you into the writer's room or let you know what's coming up ahead each season for Fiona? He does more and more. Um, it feels um, good to be included and to have um, input in the future of the character, something that was important to me in this season, which is something that I probably got a little too vocal with, even in terms of like interviews I was doing, where I was like, I really am sick of Fiona having another boyfriend every year. I'm really sick of it. I just want to see what she's like when, when she's single, who she can be on her own. And I got my wish. So um, I kind of made myself heard in that way to him. But I had said it to him directly, too. Um, and I think it was really a challenge to figure out how to write for Fiona that wasn't a romantic dynamic. And we figured it out, and I think it's really strong, and I think it's really it becomes really interesting as the season moves along. Um, June Squibb um, plays a role uh, who uh, works very closely with my character. She owns a laundromat that my character decides to buy in an uh, upcoming episode, um, and they become very close. Uh, and so I think it's been interesting to put Fiona opposite people in not a sexual way, kind of take that out of the equation. Um, I'm sure it will come in at some point again, because Fiona's a sexual being, and that's just, but I think it's nice to have a break from that so that she doesn't define herself through what it means to have a man. How comfortable have you been with Fiona's sexuality over the course of the seasons? I mean, she's been very outspoken about her sexuality. More and less and more and less. There are times in my life when I feel quite liberated and when it's quite easy to do it. And then there are other days when I personally find it less comfortable. Um, and it doesn't always have to do with how comfortable she feels or doesn't feel or if it's if I feel like it's warranted in the story or anything like that. I think um, I think there were times when I felt like, oh, this is really easy. This is just a part of the character. And then I think also recently thinking about the kind of um, I'm quite outspoken on Twitter about my political opinions and the vitriol that I hear from people um, back at me, which, by the way, it's free country. Everyone should. And that's what's beautiful. Everyone can have their opinion. But when people say things to me that um, trivialize my work and put it in a in a sexual way, it's really kind of offensive and demeaning and it makes me question whether or not I'm happy that I did it but at the same time I feel like that's what's honest for the character and I can't change the authenticity of how I want to do my work based on what some asshole on Twitter says you know like some guy, some people have been like oh well you know you Hollywood liberal elite shut up and just show your tits on Showtime. Wow. And you're just like, wow, like you're a terrible person. Mm -hmm. You clearly, by the way, thanks for watching. <laughs> and you missed the point. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it, it's, it's been pretty, I suppose when you put yourself, when you put your opinions out there, you have to be ready to get, to hear it back. 
you know, but there's a certain line that's crossed when I just always say, you know, if you don't like it, please click on follow. Mm-hmm. So I suppose there have been times when I thought, oh, I wish people didn't have that ammunition against me, although I don't think it's accurate ammunition anyway. But um, I would say for the most part, I'm very comfortable with it because I feel like it's authentically, I feel like she's much more comfortable with her own sexuality than I am. Um, I don't think there are a lot of, actually one of my best friends is very, very comfortable with her sexuality. and. She reminds me a lot of Fiona. So when I kind of need to muster that courage to, I mean, I don't think Emmy has ever had a one night stand. Maybe once, and I probably can't remember it because I've banished it from memory. But that's just not. I'm such a relationship. I'm a I'm a serial relationship monogamous. So um, it's just so different than who I am. Have you learned anything from Fiona from playing her? Yeah, I've learned that you don't have to be conventionally glamorous or pretty to be liked and appreciated and to be found attractive, that um, gumption and loyalty and heart and authenticity are attractive. And people really respond to that in her and that's, um, it's really cool, yeah. One of the things that strikes me so much about your performance, and I don't mean to call this brave, but you allow us to see a lot of ranges of yourself. You're on camera Mm -hmm. without makeup on. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. I mean, talk about that, you know, as a performer. I like it. It's, I feel, sometimes now when I do films, when I when I do look more glamorous or pretty, it, it, it almost jars me a little bit. I, I feel most authentic when, I also, I'm supposed to wear, I have a thing about, I, I'm supposed to wear glasses and contact lenses in life, but I don't, because I have this thing where I, I don't like a barrier between me and the other person even though it's a contact lens. That makes no sense. Um, I don't also like makeup or anything that prevents me, creates some kind of barrier. I've always been a person that's kind of very upfront and forthright and transparent. So um, whereas one time I would have probably been more comfortable covering up, now I'm more comfortable without it. And I think that's um, probably because of the character. What would you like to see in the future for Fiona? Well, I'm really, really happy with the way this season ends. Um, And I don't know after that. Um, Our contracts are kind of up in the air, so I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Um, I mean, I, I could see it. It's a family show, so it can go on in whatever permutation and combination it wants to forever. Um, And it can also, you know, end on a good note with, um, I don't think that there will ever be pat, happy endings for any of these characters. Um, but I, I think that that, I mean, I have always thought that the, that the series should end with Frank dying. I have always thought that that would be the most authentic thing, that he's got this second liver that he's kind of living on borrowed time. He's not treating it exceptionally well. Not so much. And I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't end with the end of him um, and kind of how that would liberate the children to live as kind of every episode ends or, or surrounds the idea that that character, the Pagliacci character, William H. Macy's Frank, is kind of the clown that kind of means well but fucks everything up and is everyone's undoing. So without him in the equation, 
I think they would still remain a family without having to clean up all the messes that he causes. Um, so, so that's, for me, what would be interesting to see. But I can't imagine what the show would be like without him. So I don't know. Does that answer the question? It totally does. Okay. <laughs> Can Frank and Fiona ever make peace? You'll see them try to kind of superficially work together. You saw it a little bit last year when they were planning her wedding, and then he ruined it, or rather, they all ruined it. Um, Dermot Mulroney's character included. Uh, and uh, I, I think that there's a... I hope I hope that there's a by the end of this season something happens and Fiona kind of realizes the love that her parents have for each other and that it's very unique and kind of specific to them um, and I think she makes a lot of progress in kind of understanding who they are um, which I think is crucial in terms of growing up and understanding who you are in, ter- in context of who your parents are and what that all means um, so yeah I mean uh I hope that they get to... I mean, if he stops fucking things up, she'll stop being so mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to imagine that happening, but yes. But yeah, yeah, I mean... I want to believe in she that. Does, he does pitch into a few things this year which are which are, are surprising. So, yeah. She does see a, a better side of him. Good. What's next for you? What do you want to do next? I did a movie for David Wayne for Netflix. That was really fun. That was more comedy. Although I'm not... Ter- terrifically funny in it, but uh, my part isn't terrifically funny. Um, but I really, really enjoyed working with him and his style, and it was a whole different approach with, um, you know, alt- alternate dialogue, alternate scenes, alternate endings to scenes, um, something where you really had to be loose in a way in which I'm from such a theater background where you you memorize every ellipsis and every pause and every, you know, and can't be an if or a but, it's an and. Um, so it was it was really freeing in a way that was really fun and it takes place in the 70s and it's about um, the rise of National Lampoon magazine. So that was really fun. I think that's coming out in the summer. Um, we're basically moving to New York, back to New York, which is really exciting. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll get to direct a little more. If Sam stops directing all of Mr. Robot, maybe he'll throw me a bone. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I could direct that show. Actually, it's it's a bit, it's um it's probably too um it's probably too cold for me. Mm-hmm. I love the show, but it's I'm I'm much more of a emotionally connected material that I would probably gravitate towards. So I'll leave him in his lane. He's he's doing pretty well. I think things are working out. For yeah, him. he's doing okay. Can you imagine the two of you ever doing something else together? Though? Yeah, we would love to. We talk about it all the time, kind of what that would be and. Um, I think he's cooking cooking some things in the kitchen. Can't wait to see what that looks like. Me too. I mean, I, I by the way, I never really know until it's handed to me. It's kind of like a vague idea while we're making eggs, and then I, I get a more fleshed-out version the next week, and it's something totally different. So we'll see. Can't wait to see what that looks like. Me too. Thanks so much for coming in. It was a pleasure to Thank talk to you. Thank Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We've got Eddie Kitsis and Adam Harowitz, the executive producers of Once Upon a Time on ABC. This has been Remote Controlled, only on Variety.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.